Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world. And we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, we are back once more into the breach, my friend, with Advent 2. This is the second edition of the same old song. Welcome back, Jake. It's great to be back, Scott, and great to uh, be doing the podcast. And we are overwhelmed. I, I think that we, we launched our first episode uh, Friday, and that we were overwhelmed with how many people listen to it and with, with some of the listener feedback we got. So thank you so much. We are uh, truly humbled that anybody is listening. <laughs> I'm amazed every day. But anyway, it's, uh, this is a great project. And once again, we're doing this uh, podcast to um, be a devotion for some and a resource for others. Um, a devotion for the layperson who just wants to you know, get a, a word of encouragement and hope for the week through the scriptures of the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday and um, a uh, nugget of truth or maybe a, a source of inspiration for uh, the preacher who is working on their sermon for Sunday. And maybe it's just a bizarre distraction for others. Yeah. You know, just are looking for a little religious entertainment. Here we That's are. That's right. Well, here we come into the second Sunday of Advent, and uh, we are uh, continuing the season of Advent and the theme of uh, the prophets preaching repentance and preparing the way for our salvation. Amen to that. And it's, a, it's the Sunday where the readings focus on hope, which is something everybody needs this time of year, and most times of year, I suppose. Well, hope is actually a uniquely Judeo-Christian concept that was introduced to the world. The pagans saw any idea of hope as just naivete. Um, it was everything was based on what you did. And so you had to have the right sacrifice in order for the crops to come in. You had the right sacrifice in order uh, to prevent flooding. But there was nothing to hope onto because the gods were capricious. Hope comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, where in the midst of darkness and in the midst of struggle, uh, God is one who speaks, and he speaks uh, judgment and he speaks love. He speaks um, judgment and grace. And so it's this word in the midst of darkness that comes and says, I'm going to make it all new, that births hope in us. And I think we see this in all three of our readings this Sunday. And when you say God speaks judgment and grace, right, you're saying it's like, it's almost like the judgment is not, is one where it's the adage, you know, you are, you are more sinful uh, than you realize, but you're also more loved than you can imagine. And, and, until we hear the word of judgment that doesn't, keep us in our neurotic guilt, but mm. relieves us of the neurotic guilt. <laughs> yeah. It leaves us in a place right where the real, Frank Lake says, where 
the real guilt that immediately once it's recognized is absorbed on the cross of Calvary. That's where we're saved from our own half-hearted judgments that actually are intended to somehow give us hope in ourselves. That's right. To the absolute judgment, which leads us to the unconditional, unswerving love of God in Christ. Yeah, Isaiah functions almost um, like a courtroom manuscript, and Israel's on trial, and uh, God is the prosecutor. Um, But then we find out that God is going to be the one who uh, takes the sentence upon himself as well. And uh, this really flows into, I think, where we're at um, in Isaiah chapter 11. You know, you have... um, Uh, the judgment that comes in Isaiah chapter 10 with the tree being chopped down. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, we begin to talk and hear about a shoot shall come from the stump. Yeah, we hear of an ideal king who one day is going to come. And in his time, perfect justice will give way to perfect peace. And so, yeah, the, the metaphor of the tree is developed from the previous chapter. And I mean, on some level, Jake, right, I think a lot of people are tempted, probably a lot of preachers are tempted to just kind of give Isaiah short shrift, as with a lot of Old Testament passages, you know, hey, there's a lot of dense historical stuff here, people, you know, Assyria, you know, that reminds people too much of a part of the world that we want to think of right now. But there's really a word of practical hope here, right, because this is a text that speaks words of hope and promise to the people of God when they're threatened by hostile forces uh, from without and by a sort of inner spiritual moral decay and fear and faithlessness from within. So it's not as if that situation for the people of God is unique to the 8th century. Correct? No, yeah, it's not. And this really speaks to, I think, um, on one level where we're all at, and it speaks a hopeful word that this... um, this branch that comes out of a stump. And so I think, you know, of the stump of Jesse, I think what this says is that actually, um, you know, so often we think that God is working in the fullness of our life. Uh, but what this passage reminds us is that God is actually uh, acutely at work in the stumps of our life. And, uh, and he's, he's at work in those stumps in our lives, uh, reconciling our lives, not only to ourselves, but to our neighbors, and then ultimately reconciling us back to him. You see all of this, of the wolf shall lie with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and kids are going to play around snake pits. You know, these are, these are images not only of empires, but these are also images of kind of the internal struggle that we all face. And uh, the gospel uh, brings uh, in this word of peace and this word of grace that comes from the stump of Jesse. Um, uh, when that word hits our lives, it brings reconciliation between the two. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's really good news and something that can speak to actually everybody in the pews today. Luther, in reflecting on this passage, says that in the days of David and Solomon, the royal stem and line of David had been green and flourishing, fortunate in its great glory, might, and riches, and famous in the eyes of the world. But in the latter days, when Christ was to come, the priest had usurped this honor and were the sole rulers while the royal line of David had become so impoverished and despised that it was like a dead stump so that there was no hope or likelihood that a king descended from it would ever attain to any great glory. But when all seem most unlikely comes Christ and is born of the despised stump, 
of the poor and lowly maiden. The rod and flower springs from her whom Sir Annas or, Caph- or Caiaphas' daughter would not have deigned to have for her humblest lady maiden. And thus God's work and his eyes are in the depths, but man's only in the height. So much for the occasion of Mary's canticle. Mm. So, so I think I love that line, though, that, that, that it alludes to what you just said, right? That God's work and his eyes are in the depths, but man's only in the height. I wonder how many times Mary had to walk around and hear whispers in the neighborhood about that little bastard Jesus. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sam Kennison has a great joke, a uh, great series on that. And he tells the story of uh, uh, Joseph playing ball with Jesus in the front yard, said, thinking to himself, son of God, you better be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads us on to... <laughs> Romans 15, uh, which is a, a text at the end of Paul's great tour de force of, of an epistle, where he's telling his readers that those who are strong are to help the weak to come to terms with their consciences. And they're, he's hoping that they can endure pleasantly with failings uh, that are irritating, you know, one to the other. Thus, building up the community of faith in Rome with Jesus as their example and being gracious with each other and exercising forbearance. Yeah, that's really good. And I I really think it's powerful because you see in this passage, he's quoting uh, from the prophet Isaiah and that very idea, like from the root of Jesse shall come the one who rises to rule the gentiles shall hope. You have this idea throughout the prophet Isaiah of of, of a great and glorious king by which the nations, all of the nations are drawn to him. And, you know, this is, uh, this is very powerful. And Paul begins by laying out how the biblical function works. That first God came, in, um, that first God came to, um, to the Jews, and then um, he has come now to, the, and that was in order, order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So you have that theme of God in Christ fulfilling all of the promises in the Old Testament. And because those promises were fulfilled, um, then uh, this goes out so that in order the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Because, uh, you know, they, um, as he says earlier in Romans, no one is without guilt. You know what I mean? The fact is, is that we have chosen not to worship him. And so, but in this lifting up of the uh, root out of the stump of Jesse, um, first coming to the Jews and fulfilling these promises that were made to the patriarchs, now all all of the world, all of the world is brought in to glorify God for his mercy. And, uh, and, uh, and he quotes once again the prophets showing the world and the Roman church and uh, all of the churches that this, what's happened here is not plan B. Jesus, I hear this all the time from parishioners, you know, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament was this angry God and Jesus is this great fun plan B. And uh, the point, one of the big ideas that Paul is working out here is that Jesus was never plan B. He was always plan A, that the whole world might rejoice with him. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting that what, I mean, the lectionary starts this reading at verse four, instructing, you know, reminding them that all the Old Testament was written to to teach that through endurance, um, we might have hope. But right before that, he quotes Psalm 69. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult, who insult you have fallen on me. 
And I think that's also the psalm where there's the vinegar, the bitter vinegar uh, illusion. And so, you know, Paul is hearing Jesus' voice in that psalm. And I think, you know, saying that what it means to be identified with the the, the Savior is um, the poverty of spirit. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> And I think people often think that the Old Testament is bereft of grace or something. And, and, and here we see Paul saying, you know, it's anything but the case. That's right. I came across this great Calvin quote this week where he's discussing Christ as the end of the law in his preface to Pierre Robot Alevaton's translation of the New Testament, who I don't know who that is, but I'm sure he was a 16th century buddy of Calvin. He should have just gone with it. Exactly. But he says that, and I think this is almost, it seems like a, what is in Paul's mind. Therefore, when you hear that the gospel presents you Jesus Christ in whom all the promises and gifts of God have been accomplished, and when it declares that, that, he, that he was sent by the Father, he has descended to the earth and spoken among men perfectly all that concerns our salvation as it was foretold in all the prophets. It ought to be most certain and obvious to you that the treasures of paradise have been opened to you in the gospel, that the riches of God have been exhibited in eternal life itself revealed. For this is eternal life, to know one only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, whom he has established as the beginning, the middle, and the end of our salvation. He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the tablets of of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide Joshua to lead us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David bringing by his hand all rebellious power subject to him. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw us and bring us to him. Mm. What a powerful word, and a word that indeed fills you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was trained in Presbyterian institutions, and there you follow three JCs, Jesus Christ, John Calvin, and Johnny Cash. Not necessarily, (laughs) mind you, in that order. And on to the gospel reading itself, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, one of my four favorite gospels. And here in the third chapter, Matthew has told us, of Jesus' descent from King David, his birth and his infancy, and the coming of the wise men or wise guys, as they say in Jersey. Now he leaps forward to about 26 AD, and John the Baptist invites people to return to keeping God's pact with them. Yeah, John the Baptist, he's an interesting... Whenever I think of John the Baptist, for some reason I think of Tom Hanks from Castaway. I love that movie. Tour, yeah, I do too. But I think of... That's in my mind when I think of John the Baptist, that's who I think of. And, um, and here he is, and, uh, and you know, you see this Isaiah theme as well, um, but um, of him being the voice of one crying in the wilderness and preparing the way of the Lord. 
making his path straight. And, uh, but John the Baptist is this uh, figure who is kind of the embodiment and the uh, culmination of all of the Old Testament prophets. He's out there in the wilderness, and uh, he is uh, not going with the status quo and basically saying everything is fine, as we're prone to do in religion. But he is out there uh, calling people to repentance. Yeah, and what's, what will be, I think, tough for the average Jew going to hear him and by the way, for, for I mean, I always think of John as a tragic father-son relationship because his father, Zechariah, right, was a man of the temple, uh, you know, a priest who was longing for a child. Mm. And he gets this child and he's silent until he names the child who he has to name John. And what a special son to get. And then to have your son take up cause against the temple, which you've given mm. your life to, to say that the place where you're going to meet God is out here in the wilderness, not it, it, with all the glitz and glamour, where you, we worship our Lord and Savior in more glorious and bigly ways. Of, you know, that actually, that he's got to call people away from the temple. And even more difficult is he's calling them to baptism, which... That's what a Gentile proselyte would do before mm. they became a Jew. So it's almost like saying we've got to go back to the beginning and reconnect with our identity as a lost and captive people. And I think that's the key to all spiritual wow. development, right? It's it's not so good. It's not higher and deeper. It's again and again. Any higher and deeper comes from revisiting our own poverty and need again and again and again. Hmm. What do you think about this very powerful image where he says, you know, he reminds them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals and that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, it's really important that this is uh, judgment imagery and um, and. Uh, uh, this would have been to the first hearers, not kind of exciting, charismatic renewal stuff. This would have been there on the banks of the Jordan River, uh, a terrifying word um, of this Messiah whose winnowing fork is in his hand and who's going to clear the flat threshing floor and gather the wheat in the granary. But the chafe will be sent to unquenchable fire. This is, I think, you know, John the Baptist, at, um, Old Testament prophet best, uh, preaching judgment. Um, but uh, as the preacher is preaching this, he wants to direct them to the one uh, who indeed uh, fire did fall down upon, the fire of judgment. And um, uh, he became the chaff on our behalf so that we in him might be uh, wheat that is still on the floor gathered eventually with all the saints. In, uh, in into into that great harvest. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about when our spiritual ancestors, our first parents, are exiled east of Eden. What blocks the entryway to the garden is an angel with a flaming sword, mm. and so Jesus has to go under the flaming sword that we can go back to the garden, not to stay there, but so that our story can be recapitulated in his and we can participate in the journey of the healed garden into the holy city mm. at the at the end of days 
You know, all three of these readings, as we were talking about earlier, have um, this great image of hope kind of through them. And really, um, that is one of the great themes of the Christian faith, and especially the season of Advent, is hope. And uh, there's this very powerful illustration um, story that I heard about the um, death of Leonid Brezhnev, uh, who was the head of the Communist Party uh, of the Soviet Union. And... um, And when he died in uh, um, when he died in uh, um, in 1982, um, uh, there was this big funeral that they had, and um, um, and all of these uh, world leaders and world figures were there, especially from the communist world. And the Soviet Union at this time had uh, become an atheistic state, and. Uh, there in the funeral with all of the cameras on the body was, uh, was his wife and uh, uh, his wife, uh, Victoria, and their children. And a lot of people were uh, frustrated with their children because they didn't dress mournfully enough. But uh, really what freaked people out was at the moment of the end of the service there, and it was a very atheistic service, Victoria, Leonard's wife, did the sign of the cross and um, and people chalked it up to grieving naivete to bring this full circle, grieving naivete of a widow. Uh, but in the end, the only re- and that's the only reason they said why she didn't spend the rest of her life in Siberia. It's interesting; she spent the last four years of her life alone and as an outcast. But the reason why she didn't spend the rest of her life in Siberia immediately for making the sign of the cross was they chalked it up to her naivete as a grieving wife. But when asked why she did it. She said, I hope, I hope that he was wrong and that God will be merciful to him. And uh, this is just a very, uh, it's a powerful illustration, I think, of hope of a people in captivity in their own ignorance and that even God is at work there. And God is at work in, in your life and in the life of your parishioners who are listening. And, uh, and this is ultimately what you want to get across, the hope found in Jesus, that, uh, that uh, root that comes out of the stump of Jesse. You know, I think this story is about Brezhnev where, I think it was about Brezhnev when he took over the Communist Party and he took his mom to this great house with all these fancy cars and all, all the opulence now that he'd get his, you know, the head of the party. And his mom said, this is wonderful, but what are you going to do if the communists take over? <laughs> and I think all of us, right, we're all like, uh, we're all sinners and saints. And the si- sinner, if we're honest, is usually more visible than the saint. And like, <laughs> you know, right. some days you sit in church, like, what are you going to do if Jesus comes and takes <laughs> over? Well, the good news is that his lordship is one that is kind to sinners. And in That's that, right. we can have our hope. Amen. Well, thanks again, Scott. Looking Thank forward you, my to being friend. with everybody. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback insights you'd like to share this is a new endeavor so we'd love to hear them you send me an email at scott jones at mbird.com thanks again for listening and have a great week